This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you are offended by potty talk, well, then you might be offended. It's Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A husband and wife couple were arrested for attempting to launder $4.5 billion in Bitcoin. This was literally the largest seizure in federal law enforcement history. The facts are that the haul was worth about $71 million in 2016 when it was stolen. That amount grew to $4.5 billion, of which $3.6 billion was recovered. Now, how do you launder $4.5 or even $3.6 billion? Well, you have to be very sophisticated and very inconspicuous, or you could go entirely in the other direction and put out terrible rap videos under the name Razzlecon. Minutes to society, higher than the sky can see. You can't get as high as me. Synesthesia, I can see. Minutes to society. So this guy, in this rhyme, this guy has the ability to see, and also, you're rhyming C and C. Two of the four rhymes there are C and C. And the synesthesia thing, where, where we go, anyway, it's terrible. It's just about the worst rap, unless you hear Razzlecon's others. She repeats that chorus, I don't know, eight to ten times. Minutes to society. Higher than the sky can see. You can't get as high as me. Synesthesia, I can see. Minutes to society. Razzle is Heather Morgan, one of the two indicted people in this gigantic money laundering scheme. She was intent on telling us that she was the crocodile of Wall Street. This from a 2019 release. Spirit of a revolutionary, power of a dictator. Love to be contrary, but I'm fly like a gator. I've got pilot blood. I'm a real risk taker. Pirate riding the flood. Badass money maker. The Daily News printed some of Razzle Khan's lyrics. And you know how when a newspaper takes a comedian's routines or lyrics to a song and writes them down in words, they always seem terrible as compared to the real thing. At one point, Mr. Z intoned, I've got 99 problems and a bitch is not one. Well, Razzle Khan's lyrics on the page Quote, I'm many things, a rapper, an economist, a journalist, a writer, a CEO, and a dirty, 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 dirty hoe on the page seem bad in life are much worse. <laughs> I'm many things, a rapper, an economist, a journalist, a writer, a CEO, and a dirty, 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 dirty hoe. Better than most- ho, ho, oh no. I'm going to say she's not really a journalist. She did write for Forbes and Inc., though. She is definitely not a master criminal. She basically admits to her crimes right here. Everyone worries too much about what's proper, but not roused. No shame, that don't stop her. Blindly following rules is for fools. Instead, I work the edge cases with my tools. Awkward as fuck. Add shit like a whirling dervish better duck. This bitch is Turkish. Don't pressure love. No, not the Turkish part. The working the edge cases with her tools part. In the indictment, one of her plans was to launder the Bitcoin billions via Walmart gift cards. Here, by the way, a lyric from Cutthroat Country. You ain't too smart. Below the chart. 
didn't have your head stop a hustling my art scaling up like Walmart ain't no sweetheart know how to play the part fuck it with the flow chart you know what i actually don't know if the Walmart reference is any more inculpatory than the bigger crime no not the bitcoin thing that song But I went to walmart.com and found out the highest value of a gift card that they sell is $500. So to get to 3.6 billion, that will take more than 7 million Walmart gift cards at the max value. How are you gonna do that, Razzle Khan? Okay, sounds like a fantastic plan. Razzle Khan and her husband, Ilya Lichtenstein, faced 20 years imprisonment, having been charged with conspiracy to commit money laundering, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and violation of the Van Winkle Accords for crimes against hip-hop. On the show today, I spiel about a sad and disappointing result in the Olympics that spurred misplaced outrage. But first, you know some internet scammers actually are more sophisticated than RazzleCon there. In fact, hackers have shown the capacity and the ability to cripple critical U.S. infrastructure. A new podcast called Click Here is telling the story of digital security risks. They're investigating some of the most dangerous and heretofore least understood cyber vulnerabilities. Host Dina Temple-Rastin has in her career covered terrorists and white supremacists. And now she gets inside the world of hackers. My talk with Dina up next. I was just listening to a new tech podcast, and from the first second I was in, because it is the rare tech podcast that does not start with the beep, beep, boop, boop of electronica. In fact, there's a lazy, I'm going to say, steel guitar playing in the background as we meet a town on the Texas panhandle. The name of the podcast is Click Here. It tells stories about the people and ideas shaping our digital world, but it tells stories, at least extensively from the ones I've heard, about the victims of cybercrime. It's hosted by former NPR investigations correspondent Dina Temple-Rastin. She's going to be our guide through cyberspace and this next 15 minutes of interview. Dina, hello. Hey, hello. Tell me about this town, which doesn't seem like the center of internet activity. It's not in Silicon Valley. I don't think the people there wear all birds or blue vests. Why do you decide to start in Bourger, Texas? Well, there could be blue vests, but the reason why we focused on that was because we're basically turning back the clock to this hack that people in Texas noticed, but maybe people outside of Texas didn't quite understand how important it was. And it happened back in 2019. Basically what happened, it was it was the largest coordinated ransomware attack that the U.S. had seen to that point. 23 different sites in Texas were hit all simultaneously. And um, we picked Borger just because uh, they ended up sort of having a lucky break in that uh, they didn't suffer quite as much as some of the other cities did. And what we wanted to know was, you know, hey, if 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 states actually do get put under some sort of ransomware attack, what actually happens? How do people respond? And then we use that as a vehicle to get into uh, a kind of famous hacking group that a lot of us have heard about more recently. 
So what are the consequences of getting hacked? Just inconvenience, uh, a dire situation? I guess it plays out differently in different 20 towns, but what can happen and did happen? Well, various. I mean, the, I guess on the spectrum of most worrisome, most worrisome is that uh, a water facility plant that they had, and they're not talking about which town actually had this problem, they had hacked into that. So they had to go over to manual you know, sort of control it manually. So that's sort of on the scary end of the spectrum. And on the less scary end of the spectrum, I suppose, is, you know, they couldn't, uh, squad cars in particular cities, uh, police squad cars couldn't call in license plates numbers. If you wanted to get married, you couldn't get the information you needed for your marriage license. Birth certificates were all locked up. And if this had happened for a long period of time, if it had been maybe a more sophisticated hack, um, it could have gotten a lot worse. So in your in the first report on Click here, you quote a town official who says the the who did this and the why this happened, that's for someone else. I just got to get my community back online. And you detail that. But then you take it upon yourself to kind of solve or explain to us the who and the how. But I do want to go to what happens afterwards. Is there, and this is this is maybe the least uh, tech intensive part of what you examine. Is there a best practices or is there a, a, a playbook for responding to an ask of ransom? Maybe these 20 different communities should coordinate their response. Maybe they shouldn't and every, they should bargain against each other to get the best price. What are people to do once they're hacked? Well, spoiler alert, they didn't pay a dime. <laughs> And that was what was really interesting. And the reason why we looked at this particular case is that the the people who learned the most from this particular hack weren't the people you're talking about, the victims. You know, they coordinated with the state. They had actually had some uh, sort of red teaming done. So they had some idea what to do before this even happened. They had been talking about hacks. The people who really learned the most from this particular hack was the group that was behind it. Revil. Mm. And what they had done is they had done months of reconnaissance. They'd found the right, you know, managed service provider to get into. They coded in such a way that they could get in and not be noticed. All that happened, months and months of recon, and they didn't get a dime for their ransomware attack. And the reason why this is important is because it made them rethink their business model. So instead of being your regular old hacker who breaks into a system and then holds it for ransom, they said, you know what, that's too much work. Our ransomware is like such good quality. The way we do it is so good. What we should do is we should just lease it. We should, and it's something called ransomware as a service. So all these different people who want to spend all their time cracking into systems, they can do that. And we'll basically give them the ransomware that they can inject into that. And we'll take a percentage. They have franchisees. Yes, exactly. They, they decided on the franchise model. So there's always this sense, you know, that the, the, the cities are learning something. But the really important lesson that was taken away from 2019 in Texas was the lesson that this hacking group called Revil took away. Now, Revil, apart from reveling in evil, and there is a, <laughs> a section of the show where we discuss what, what actually is the name. I guess they enjoy the mystery or they're bad at branding. Either way, who are they? What is, aside from getting the money, or maybe in addition to getting money, what's their motivation? Well, we, we learned reasonably recently, we know something about them, right? Because allegedly the FSB, the National Security Police in Russia, just rounded up about a dozen of them and said, you know, we did this as a favor to uh, 
to President Biden. But basically what they are is they're they're cyber criminals. A lot of them are Russian speaking. Not all of them are in Russia. And um, there's one person in particular that we talk about in the podcast, and he goes by the name Unknown. And if Unknown I was a hacker, was I'd essentially... be uh, Irv uh, Feigenbaum. I'd just go the <laughs> other route. <laughs> so so this this particular manager of, of Revil, who went by the name Unknown, you know, he sort of kept the trains running on time, right? So as a general matter, it's not a good uh, business practice to take someone's ransom and then not open up their system. Right. Because if it gets around that you don't do that, then nobody's going to pay the ransom. They figure they've lost their their information anyway. So there's a little honor among thieves in this particular case. And, and well, people, I think it's self-interest among thieves, essentially. Yes. Less than honor, more than self-interest. I would agree yeah. with that. That's yeah. probably a better way to put it. And what's interesting is that Revo was actually kind of concerned about his brand for a while, right? So mm-hmm. during COVID, it was hacking a lot of, you know, hospitals and healthcare uh, organizations. So it was getting a really bad reputation as sort of, hey, guys, you're kind of piling on. COVID is bad enough. And so they stopped doing that and they started targeting other things. So it's actually a kind of a market sensitive group, much more yeah. so than you would think. Okay, let's talk about the FSB part of it. FSB is uh, essentially the... uh, Think of it as a national security police force. Yeah, I was thinking of KGB-like for the new Russia. I always wondered why the Russians allowed, unless they were somehow benefiting from, and I wouldn't put it past them, why they allowed these lawbreakers to run rampant Um, On the one hand, sure, they're attacking the West and Russia has a general strategy of flummoxing America and Western powers. So they weren't exactly acting against self-interest, but maybe there's something else there that they knew maybe these guys would be a bargaining chip down the road. But just what's your analysis on that? Russia, the FSB picked up Revel, but it seemed like they were turning a blind eye to them for many, many years. Well, certainly they picked them up uh, rather quickly quickly, which would make you think, okay, so they could have turned on a dime and picked these guys up six months ago before the colonial pipeline hack even happened, right? And there was always this sense in, if you talk to intelligence people here in the U.S., they'll tell you that the Russians know exactly who these people are and that they just didn't have any real incentive to pick them up. And certainly the message when they picked up the Revo guys in in January was, hey, we can pick them up. You play nice with us, we'll play nice with you and we'll pick these guys up. But there hasn't been widespread, you know, sort of arrests. And and one of the interesting things about Revo is they'll hack just about anybody. But really interestingly, there's never been a hack against Russia from that (laughs) group. So I don't think that's accidental. So I think that there's sort of this idea among uh, government officials is, hey, look, we'll look the other way while you guys are hacking as long as you don't hack us. This is a classic uh, crime boss, crime syndicate model. You allow uh, certain crimes in the territory you control. And as long as they either kick up or kick up and don't hurt your people, you allow them to operate. Yes. And there's one more level on top of that. And that is The thing about cyber, and it's less like this than it was like five years ago, is that attribution is hard. It's not impossible. Everybody talks about how difficult it is to attribute things. It's not. It takes work. It's not instantaneous. It's not like, you know, dusting for a fingerprint. But there are enough different ways now to find attribution that you can figure out who's behind a hack. So if you want to hack someone, let's just say you want to just sort of rattle the cages in the United States, but you don't want them to be able to trace it back to you. 
what you do is you have sort of this cutout, right? And the cutout would be maybe these guys who you know are hacking in your country. And you say, mm. listen, we know you did this. We know you got this much Bitcoin. We know you're making money and you're not paying taxes on it. But look, we're not going to send you to prison right now if you do this little job for us. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we know that Russia was behind the colonial pipeline hack. But I do think as a general matter, it's accepted within the cyber sort of intelligence world that these cutouts happen all the time and that whether it's Iranian or North Korean or Chinese or Russian, which are sort of the big four, uh, they have these hackers uh, on you know, national territory who can very easily do little jobs for them so they don't get arrested. Do these countries, these state actors who hack, I mean, the Russians do have their cozy bears and their fancy bears who are... Uh, There's a dancing to, bear, too. There's a dancing bear, too. My God, pretty soon there will be a teddy bear. Be the <laughs> least cute. So the countries do have uh, these hackers sometimes working for them or these cutouts. Does that mean that their own security is particularly robust? No, not necessarily. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, this is part of the other thing that, you know, the National Security Agency, some time ago, uh, General Paul Nakasone, who heads that, talked about what he called defend forward. And defend forward was essentially the idea that you can't be, once someone attacks you, you can't then try to get into their networks or their infrastructure, because by then it's too late, right? It takes a while to get in. It takes a while to sort of hide yourself in there. It takes a while to explore a network. So Defend Forward was all about basically saying, we're sitting in these adversarial networks now. We're not doing anything. We don't want to do anything. But if they attack us, we're in a position that we can strike back. That has been General Nakasone's sort of policy, right? And mm -hmm. that was what was different. When he announced that, it was sort of the first time that I think Americans heard that while you're hearing all about the Russians and the Iranians and the Chinese and the North Koreans and they're hacking into Sony and all these other companies, we never hear very much about what the United States might be doing on its end. Mm -hmm. And Nakasone was sending a very clear signal. Look, we're sitting in these different places. Don't think we're sitting here doing nothing. Uh, is there a proof that they that there are capabilities to pair with that threat? Absolutely. It's Absolutely. been done. Let's let's just say that lights flicker out, and, you know, maybe an Internet goes down. I did a huge story for National Public Radio um, a couple years ago called Hacking ISIS, which gave you sort of an inclination of what they could do. And what it was is it was a task force at NSA called Task Force Ares and Task Force Ares basically were charged with taking down the media operation of ISIS. As you know, I used to be the counterterrorism correspondent mm -hmm. over at NPR. So um, so basically what they did is, is they did like, it gave you an idea of what their tools were. So for example, nothing drives us more crazy than the spin, spinning wheel of death, right? You're loading, yeah. you're loading, you're loading. Going, right. So one of the things they did is they actually slowed down ISIS's internet connection. So it was loading and loading and loading and driving them crazy, right? And they could see it was driving them crazy because they were in their communication networks and could see them talking to each other. So I'm so stupid. What I would do is get a human asset, risk him, and just have him download the latest season of Emily in Paris on Netflix in their caves, you know? That would slow him down. Uh, <laughs> in, in high def. Yeah, yeah. definitely slow oh, down. of course. Yeah. So I was thinking about your terrorism background 
and let's say anti-terrorism, counterterrorism, reporting on terrorism, how it maps onto this. And well, first of all, what is Revel's name? What is ISIS's name? Is it ISIL? Is it Daesh? There's that. But <laughs> the whole idea of Al-Qaeda being having cells and being a fragmented, non-centralized entity, thus increasing their reach, that's exactly what's going on with Revel, isn't it? Yeah, there are a lot of, it's really interesting. There's a lot of overlap between what I used to do as a terrorism correspondent and what I do now as someone who's covering cybersecurity. And and that even happened while I was still at NPR. I, I noticed that a lot of these terrorist groups were getting super tech savvy. Like, I don't know if you remember Al-Shabaab in Somalia. And so they came out with these hip hop videos. They were actually uh, sort of put together by a young American named Omar Hamami, who had gone to join Al-Shabaab. And um, these hip-hop videos were used to recruit people. And they were going on these different Facebook pages, and people were finding them on YouTube, and it was really working. And so there was sort of this transition for a lot of these terrorist groups to become super tech-savvy. ISIS was a perfect example of that, right, with GoPro cameras and whole channels on YouTube and secret channels that people had to sign into just so they could do some of their recruitment. In the old days of al-Qaeda, you needed a real person to sort of talk with you one-on-one to convince you to join the group. But as time progressed... Uh, the internet was enough, and it was really effective, particularly for ISIS. I mean, tons of people left the United States. Dozens and dozens of people from Minnesota alone went to go and join ISIS because of their online recruiting. And the other thing that happened that was kind of odd was that a lot of my sources in terrorism, like I would call them, they'd go, oh, we're working the cyber thing now. Mm -hmm. So like my Rolodex didn't change, just sort of the way I organized them did. All of a sudden it was all about cyber. So it was kind of a it was kind of a natural progression. And there is a lot of overlap between the two, not just in the people who study it, but as you say, in the techniques that they use. Dina Temple Rastin is the host and executive producer of the Click Here podcast. She's also a senior correspondent at The Record, which is a journalistic offshoot of Recorded Future. They're covering all these stories in many ways, including, as you can hear in podcast form, the first ones out there already. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, unless it's on an unsecured server that is busy downloading Emily in Paris. Thank you, Dina. You bet. Thanks for having me, Mike. And now the spiel. Did you see what happened to Michaela Schifrin yesterday in Beijing? Maybe not. Ratings are down more than half compared to the 2018 Winter Olympics. These Olympics should get, I don't know, 30 million viewers on a weekend. But from Saturday to Sunday, the Beijing Games drew an average of 13 and a half million viewers. But if you were watching last night, you witnessed a shocking sight. Michaela Schifrin, greatest skier in the world, focal point of NBC's Olympic coverage, co-star with dinosaurs in a commercial that doesn't make much sense, except as an exercise in attempted iconography, she skied out. Means she missed a turn, thereby disqualifying herself in the slalom. The subtext of shock was unmistakable, especially because on NBC it was text. The important first run of the slalom to set the tone. He- oh, no! You have got to be kidding me. Shocker right off the bat. Didn't even get into the course. And what Schifrin did next 
was to sit on the course, just sit there for about 25 minutes. The fact of Schifrin's DQ was astonishing. The figure of Schifrin sitting there was compelling. We could not look away, though it was clear some part of us wanted to. The NBC announcers were, to my eyes and ears, maximally respectful. There wasn't a whiff of condemnation or criticism, not a scintilla of blame being hurled at Schifrin, who was, of course, the golden girl central to NBC's marketing, but also, if stated plainly, an athlete who had failed, which is part of athletics. If it weren't, there wouldn't be achievement. There wouldn't be tension. There wouldn't be competition. There'd be no Olympics. This is, I think, a representative comment from the NBC coverage. This is just hard to believe. It's going to be way up there on a list of Olympic disappointments. Shiprin still down on the snow. Lindsey Vaughn, most likely the greatest woman skier in history and now an NBC analyst, offered her thoughts of the events. She said they did not detract from Shiprin's historic greatness or legacy. I didn't hear anywhere the word failure attached to Schifrin. I did not hear any dismissiveness or terms like choke. But still, there was Schifrin, her arms cradling her knees, her downcast, helmeted head vying for our attention. Some viewers insisted we should all look away. Quote, the camera staying on Michaela Schifrin for this long after the media putting extensive pressure on her prior to the games shows they didn't learn shit from Simone Biles. That one got almost 4,000 likes. Another viewer tweeted, me watching Michaela Schifrin after that run, I hope that girl isn't too hard on herself. The announcers, what a mistake. What a disappointment. This will live in infamy for the rest of time. We have literally not moved the needle on mental health at all. That one got over 5,000 likes. But the announcers didn't use words like infamy. Also, Schifrin didn't withdraw, citing mental health issues. She missed a turn. Of course, psychology plays a big role in all sports. Schifrin even said so in her remarks after leaving the course. My perception is that the vast majority of those of us watching had our hearts go out to Michaela Schifrin. NBC showing her sitting there was not invasive. It was moving. And also, factually, it was conveying what actually was going on. If viewers were moved, I'd say they were moved in the right direction towards compassion. Yet, the angriest tweets got the most engagement. The two I read weren't from famous people or anyone who should garner a large audience. They were from the angriest people or the people maybe who were angry earliest. And they were the most engaged with, liked, responded to tweets except for one from Schifrin herself. I think it speaks to anger and needing to have an enemy, needing to make an enemy of NBC's cameras, and it all seems fairly misguided to me. And yeah, I know you can find angry people on the internet about everything, and I know the internet isn't real life, but of course it's real life. I read those posts. I had real thoughts and feelings about those posts. You're hearing about them now, feeling something. Posts like that are how we learn about what's going on in the world. And furthermore, even if you're not on Twitter, Twitter becomes non-Twitter. The New York Times initial coverage of the event was to cover the event headline. Michaela Schifrin, still without a medal, fails to finish in her best event. And a picture of the gutted Schifrin sitting on the side of the course. The print version of that was Schifrin falters in slalom, falling out of second straight race. It's true, accurate, economical. Soon there was another New York Times story on Schifrin with this as the Twitter tease, NewYorkTimes.com. NBC lingered on Schifrin after her fall, drawing anger. Many compared the moment to the treatment of Simone Biles, who tweeted in support of Schifrin. 
the drawing anger on social media article was so similar to the Schifrin fails to finish article. They had almost the same lead. They both had quotes from Schifrin. They both mentioned that Simone Biles tweeted her support. But here was the paragraph in the drawing anger article. Some on social media criticized NBC for keeping a camera focused on Schifrin as she sat contemplating her performance. Shortly after her disqualification, the gymnast Simone Biles tweeted in support of her. That was the entirety of the Drawing Anger article's discussion of the anger that was drawn. It's not journalism malpractice. It's not the media egregiously dwelling on a phenomenon that it invented. But it's emblematic. This, Michaela Schifrin's failure to qualify, and who knows if she'll even ski the Super G, that is an open question. It'll all be one of the biggest stories of the games, no matter how it shakes out. Years ago, this would be what we would call a water cooler moment. The Simone Biles story was, everyone in America had an opinion on that. And like Simone Biles, I would say this story inspired near unanimity of publicly expressed opinion. And it was humanity. Humanity was the expressed opinion. The ugliness of people's reactions weren't in the actual reactions, but in what many rallying around Schifrin assumed would be the reactions. Take Schifrin's boyfriend, and this was included in the most popular tweet I saw on it, the one that Michaela Schifrin herself put out there. There was the picture of her sitting there, and he wrote about it. When you look at this picture, you could make up so many statements, meanings, and thoughts. Most of you probably look at it and say, she has lost it. She can't handle the pressure. Or what happened? Which makes me frustrated, because all I see is a top athlete doing what a top athlete does. It's part of the game, and it happens. Look, I haven't done a survey of every attention-seeking talk show host or every commenter on every online article. I know someone out there who has a Twitter handle with three flags and an eagle or someone who is part of the Blaze Network is going to say something dismissive. But my goodness, this was a story that showed that the vast majority of American society who cared were in fact caring, were kind, forgiving, uplifting guided by something like the better angels of their nature. Yet the most prominent reactions were about how cruel and heartless human beings can be. Michaela missed a gate. Far too many people are missing a truth about the predominance of cruelty versus kindness on this one. And that is it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Joel Patterson. The assistant producer, it's Corey Wara. Michelle Pesca copy edits The Gist's public-facing properties. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>